Welcome to the Mama Mosaic Podcast, where we are amplifying motherhood. Join us here every week for conversations with advocates, experts, authors, and of course, moms. I'm your host, Maria Carolla. Thank you for listening. Talk to you soon. Today, we are talking with Walker Ladd. Walker was previously a professional modern dancer with both a BA and MFA in dance from UCLA. She returned to school to receive an MA in clinical psychology and practiced as a couples and family therapist. Following traumatic childbirth and subsequent postpartum depression in 2000, Walker dedicated herself to maternal mental health advocacy and research literacy, working as a certified birth doula and serving in the perinatal mental health editor for Lamaze International Science and Sensibility. She then returned back to school to receive her PhD in psychology. Since then, receiving her doctorate in 2014, Dr. Ladd has taught research methods and mentored doctoral students through the dissertation process while conducting her own research on perinatal mood and anxiety disorders across the lifespan. She has been a faculty member of Saybrook University since 2018 and is currently full-time faculty in the Department of Research. Walker, welcome. I'm so happy to be with you today here. My pleasure. My pleasure. It's an honor. Honor. Well, thank you. There's so many things to talk about, um, and there's really nobody better or for me that I'd rather uh, grist the mill with. (laughs) Um, But one of the things that I wanted to sort of talk about with you and it's it's something that that I another thing that we share is this love of photography and imagery and you've talked before about you know images that speak to the hidden nature of the female experience the sort of those unexpected moments those unscripted moments right um and one thing I remember you saying is that the focus is on women, not on babies. And I, and it really got me thinking about the way that, well, the power of images certainly, but the way that women are inundated with these imagery, imagery and terms and certain things and these expectations that they carry sort of like the, the, consumerism of motherhood as somebody referred to it the other day and I just love how you blend your you bring in you weave in your creativity into your work and I think that that's really important because it helps make the words more relatable the experience more relatable to whatever it is that you're sharing Um, so I just would love to talk to you a little bit about words and images and how important are words and yeah and you know what what yeah you know this sort of in those in-between moments and you know I guess looking at it from another way it's like we know what we aren't saying or seeing and we know what we are what people are saying and seeing but what should we be saying and seeing you know and and again to frame this in like the bigger context of like you know specifically within your work um, within the area of maternal mental health, um, 
but also combining research that we'll, we'll dive into a little bit is you have some tools and some pathways that I think you've been able with, with the research angle or expertise to really discover some very, very interesting pieces of the puzzle, I feel like as you, you know, so with words and images and, um, you know, and all of this makes me think of your blog naming names, you know, and the use of those photos. Um, so can you talk a little bit about, you know, how and why images are important in words to you and, and in general in the, in the research world? Yes. And thank you for, I mean, it's uh, so great to even have these kinds of conversations. And I think I, the first thing that came to mind is the idea of audience. Because I blog um, very carefully because that's not academic. And I have to use academic language to be read in academia where you have to, even if you're doing a, a study that involves photo, photo elicitation or you're doing an arts-based inquiry, you still have to frame it within the constructs of scholarship, which are patriarchal. So for me, the older I get, the more I see that uh, and experience directly that my true self comes out through spending time with, with words. And very often that word will generate in me some sort of phenomenological image. And the flip side of that is when I see an image in my own world, either through you know circumstances, coincidence, or when I see people, I get so curious that the image captures something that I know we're not talking about. That's just my personal subjective experience. So I started writing about, it's just kind of a creative writing tool. When I was doing my, my dissertation, I was doing my, my schoolwork at Starbucks when the kids were at school. There's a Starbucks down the street. And oh my God, I would see people, this is in San Bernardino Valley in Los Angeles. You know, I remember a, a regular, her name I gave her was Bertha. And Bertha came in every day, I would see her and I just, kind of being pulled creatively and, and use the word phenomenologically towards understanding what is it like to be Bertha? Where did she come from? Why is she wearing that jacket today? And having that creative exercise of kind of imagining Bertha's life. That kind of, and I, or I would capture one of my favorite pieces is he will never shut up on my on my blog because I watched this conversation take place in or not take place rather where this couple over coffee and seeing the language that the man was using and it I you know I'm not going to impose any 
thing on that necessarily, but the interaction, he was using these big words. He's trying to, what I would say, big words of entrepreneur, uh, performance. And they were obviously on some sort of a date and he was not ever stopping the flow of language out of his mouth. It was like projectile vomit. <laughs> it, was, it was fascinating to me, he couldn't stop. She just kind of disappointedly and dutifully sat there and looked out the window. And it was, that's an example of an exchange or seeing somebody, I never wrote about this one, but I remember her uh, parked, I parked at CBS and seeing somebody in the parking spot across from me, this woman, older woman, she was obviously in so much physical pain, trying to get in her car was a moment of human experience that I, had to watch and that I loved her for. I loved her in that moment. I love people in the moment who are maybe not being seen. And so the images come out. And um, with regards to the research side, I have in my last published study, I started using imagery during data analysis, but I don't get to talk about that when it's published. So this, the, the I'm pointing, the painting behind me right now is a painting for my current study. And it's when the language of research doesn't do justice to what I'm, what the participants are saying. There's a, there's an ineffable, there's a, a intangible essence that I, I, I am moved to just to get it out. And it helps uh, me go through data analysis. So words, I have always been, even before I'm thinking uh, always, like before I learned about philosophy, uh, have always, that words are just fascinating and how we use them and what we do with them. And if you, you know, it reminds me of Angela um, Spicer because the idea of comedy is if you put two things together that don't normally go together, there's an opportunity for laughter. And just taking a word or an image that is not the usual from childhood on, it's been something that is just a part of me. I think it came out of a family of origin, but you know, I, my family, like many families, had all kinds of isms and they formed me. I mean, my family called me crabby. You're crabby. Why are you so crabby today? Uh, you know, my dad had all kinds of nasty break. It's better than a poke in the eye with a sharp stick. And these slowly, you know, like whenever anything good would happen for one of us, well, hang on, let me get a box of metals off the refrigerator. Like that's my dad voice, by the way. That was belittling and told us 
what we could and couldn't do. But then there were also words that we made up that were ours, like the word gad. Uh, my grandmother made this word up and it, it just fits anything where you need to say to the other person, like we're having a conversation about having to um, do something really tedious with somebody that you know is just an asshole <laughs> and being able to say to my sister, oh, God. <laughs> and that we shared that throughout our family, especially the, my mom and my sister. And I thought, oh, it's just, you know, it was a great word to say. That's so, amazing. I love that notion of having a, a, not a code, but, you know, creating that, your own lexicon. Yeah. With so many things attached to it. Um, yeah. And I love the use too, and the reference to historical photos, um, their images of women and girls. And, um, you know, I know you have in, you know, recently or I remember seeing posts that you made and we're, you're focusing in on these pregnant women, right? Mm. As if pregnancy is like a shape, you know, mm. there are no faces, they're all detached and de decapitated. Oh. And um, I was talking with someone the other day and they were saying, you know, they remember ordering that first delivery of diapers, pampers, whatever to be delivered. And this is here in New York. So it made sense that it would be, you know, but, um, and she said she saw this beautiful, peaceful woman, totally blissed out, holding a beautiful, perfect blissed out baby. And she just threw the box out back in the hallway and closed the door. It was like, that's not me. I don't want you in my presence. And again, that sort of, you know, the consumerism of it all, like we're, what we're made to feel, how we're made to feel, the language that's being used for some of us, we recognize it from childhood. You know, I, my father was very sarcastic and you know, sort of, you know, you throw like a girl. Well, you know, that kind of thing. Um, so I think, you know, again, like when, when a woman, you know, embarks on this journey, God love her, of motherhood from the get-go, even, you know, before conception, right? We're sort of inundated with these expectations and so on. Um, and often, as I'm hearing more and more stories, these can sometimes be a sort of a precursor or a pre-qualifier for being even more fragile when you go into a birthing space, right? Okay. So you're, you can be, and, and, and then leading into um, the traumas, the multiple traumas that are being heaped on women and these are, you know, I'm not even saying they're, they've been diagnosed with anything, but, you know, sort of from day one, you know, these expectations that we have that you're supposed to be this perfect, beautiful, you know, on a Pampers box. And so, you know, people, women are feeling like failures before they even have the baby, you know, oh, you're not, you're not eating the right thing. You're not sleeping in the right way. You're not, you're doing this too much. You're doing that too much. You're not doing enough of this. And so, and then God forbid something happens and they say, oh, there's something wrong with the baby. The baby's not this, the baby's not that. Where does that go? The mom in turn internalizes all this. So 
by the point that the baby, before the baby's even earthside, this woman in many cases already just feels like shit, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and this, these are, this is, I'm talking about like a, a practitioner setting, who knows, she might be getting, you know, hip, hip hoorays and lots of support elsewhere, hopefully. But this idea that the continuum and the timeline of postpartum depression or the postpartum, which is how we're sort of lumping, we hear perinatal, we hear, we don't think though, that this can happen. This is something that we women might be bringing into their pregnancy that before we even conceive the child, we're drenched and saturated in these expectations. Um, And many of those are traumas in and of themselves. And so um, you you brought up Angelina Spicer, her documentary is called Push, The Push for Permission. Um, And I really love the use of the word. I'm I'm proud to see, I'm happy to see the word permission there. And that's really what it is. I'm happy to see the word push. All of it, but it's something that we don't give ourselves enough of, you know, permission. The reasons, it's not coincidental. And, you know, this is just my perspective. Think about, we started with the idea of consumerism, you know, uh, the making of motherhood and images and advertisement. I'm, I start with the very beginning texts that we've ever had ever in history have referred to humankind as man. So the biblical texts, the philosophical texts, the medical texts, the historical texts are written about human beings as men. Think about our uh, Declaration of Independence or other, even, you know, uh, policies, you know, uh, that does something. That, that informs us who are born as female, told us from the get-go what we can and cannot do. And I lean very heavily on the feminist existential kind of gig of Simone de Beauvoir, who had this down in the ethics of ambiguity and said, you know, one one is born, one is not born, but rather one becomes a woman. And that becoming a woman has to do with all of the rules along the road that we're told and in language specifically, and it, it forms us. So, you know, I've, in terms of the f- kind of the feminist piece, when I look at, um, yeah, and I, d- I, I haven't published it, but you're familiar with my piece about a big belly, no head. And just asking anybody to Google the word pregnancy and the images that come up are of big bellies. And, rarely a head attached <laughs> and it's quite ludicrous and funny in a way because of the variation there are bellies with you know mystery hands touching it there are bellies with a heart 
around the belly button, that must tell us something, but no heads. There are no heads on these pictures. There might even be multiple hands, you know, maybe a little one, uh, I guess, I'm guessing, I'm assuming that it's a, a child's hands touching the belly. Well, you know, you just made me think of something. And then after baby, all we see are heads. We never go back and say, here's the belly after the baby, by the way. <laughs> Well, after you know, the baby, we don't see pictures face. of the well, right, or the mother's face, you know, because you can focus just on the box, right? And but we never return to cherishing and 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 reveling and and marveling at the at the body. Well, <laughs> that goes out the window. I can say that we actually, in our current society, we do, we do go back to it in a very sick way. And that way is how quickly can you get your pre-pregnancy body back? What, and that, I mean, Instagram is, I, I, you know, I can't do it anymore because it feeds these images and the way of being in the world is supposed to look like something that we're actually feeding each other. And that's, it's just wrong. So when it comes to motherhood, I think we're, we're not, we don't come into motherhood where we become a mother based on what society is telling us to do. This gets really wacky. I, I, and I was talking to somebody yesterday about this, a, a researcher in this field. When you think about feminism, you know, the idea of, okay, we've got a right to vote. That's kind of that first wave gig. Second wave of, okay, and I'm gonna put a caveat around that, that we've got a right to vote was mostly for white women, if not exclusively. But then the second wave of like, we should have equal access to jobs. We should have equal equality, ERA, equal rights. Okay. How'd that work out for us? And then this kind of, third and what we might be now in sort of a fourth wave of everything should be addressed and accepted regardless. So I really see that the birth doula movement and lactation, and I'm gonna probably piss people off. I was a birth doula, I was in this space. I wanted to help other women, an advocate, uh, and as a feminist, but then I saw industry come into it and no, no fault, but you know, everyone kind of making businesses out of it, making businesses out of trying to help others, that's okay. But the communities that were born from these movements ended up uh, being misogynistic, just gonna say it. Misogynistic in that we tell women now uh, that they must breastfeed or that they must wear baby. This has gone so far as to change policies in hospitals where there are no longer nurseries. 
So mom coming into that space, being told coming in all the ways to do it right, should want an unmedicated, you should know how to do and birth your baby naturally. Your body knows you've got to trust your body. Don't let anybody do anything to you. Have a birth plan. And then when you're experiencing it yourself and you want to voice it, you don't have a voice because the, you, know, the, it, you don't really have choice. It's not empowerment. I don't think it's empowering to tell women that they should do anything. You should breastfeed, says who? Well, it's good for the baby. That's the slippery slope. Oh, well, okay. yeah, and you're also, you brought up um, before policy and we're talking now industry. And then if you throw in there the um, sort of institutionalized um, institutions, you know, the the ACOGs of the world, you know, whatever, yeah. like, because who are these people? There are plenty of people in the world who say you don't have to wear your baby. You don't have to breastfeed. You don't have to live. But there's also a very... Um, consistent, definitely a consistent narrative here in the US. And I think some things have shifted. I think about this often, and I know this is also another aspect of the motherhood experience that you explore and discuss is this idea that as, you know, it's not just one time, it doesn't, anyway, we're gonna, I'll go back to that. Um, but since, for example, I had children, 15 plus years ago, I like to think, and you know, that there have been some improvements. We like to think that, right? Mm -hmm. But the what you just described, I think is very much what many women do. They go in, they've got their birth plan, they're, they, although I have to say more and more, I keep hearing from women who say they had no idea, they weren't prepared, nobody prepared them. Um, so they were just blindsided, you know, um, and then of course it becomes this perfect storm. It's just one thing happens after the other. And, and meanwhile, a woman, it well, especially if giving birth in a hospital, you're sort of stripped away of your dignity right off the bat when you're being told to strip naked and put on a gown. And then you're in a bed, usually with stuff hooked up to you. So that becomes like, it, again, like you were saying, it, it, it just continues and goes down many other slippery slopes. But looking, understanding that and knowing that that is happening, there's this other amazing part, of, which is that of empowerment. So, you know, if we who had children over a decade ago were to knew what we know now, then, right, what would we do differently? And I think there's a great opportunity, you know, things are more open, people are becoming a little bit more accepting of other practices, right? Or also realizing that the birth plan is out the window the second, I mean, there is no birth, <laughs> anything can happen, right? Things can can shift. And so in, a, in the sense that there's an empowerment, maybe that didn't exist, at least when I became a mom, I feel like there's also a surrender maybe where women are starting to learn to 
advocate for themselves or to, you know, look ahead. Someone the other day was pregnant and she said, oh my God, I'm getting, I already have my doula set up. I have my postpartum doula set up. She's got a therapist in place. This is all just, you know, proactive, not proactive, but, you know, doing this in preparation for even having a baby. And it's like, wow, that's really. Did you share it online? Yeah, it was actually an interview. It was a news anchor who was pregnant and talking about the, you know, um, not everybody can have those. Yeah, not everybody can have those things in place. And so, you know, going back to learning or empowering women to become their own researchers in their lives and and also in this this experience uh, of having a baby and after that, um, how, what, can you talk a little bit about that, about the, the empowerment, you know, the, the sort of intersection of that research and empowerment and in, you know, well, I think what the common ground there is allowing, you know, speaks to the permission piece we were just talking about. One of my words that I I squint a little bit, I winced when I hear permission, but it's true. If we give ourselves permission to know the facts ourselves and to consider, I mean, it all goes, when, when I teach research, I teach, we talk about cultural humility and it's a actual kind of theory about an intellectual humility of how we can be stronger by knowing we don't know. That's actually more critical than knowing things ahead of time. Because we're all taught through our education that the scientific method is that you put facts together in order to predict something. You get all of that data. And that's the kind of way, you know, cultures of privilege do that research about motherhood now. So you get the this and you get the that and you get the this and you're on social media and you put all of those things together, but without intellectual humility and saying, am I wrong? Let me, let me think about the OBGYN who just said that I have a high risk pregnancy. What if I actually sit with that and then go do some research about it? And I'm, I don't mean go conduct a study. I mean, just search deeper than the top level reaction that you're hearing from social media. And it's okay to say, if you're in one of these communities of uh, birth paraprofessionals, I think we have uh, well, I'm no longer in that area, but I think that there's a responsibility to say, you know, I can't tell you that eating your placenta is going to help you avoid postpartum depression. Part of the reason I left the birth movement was more and more of this kind of movement towards alternative. And if you, you know, that's fine if you individually want to you know be sucking on placenta pops knock yourself out but don't 
charge another woman to make those pops and tell her that it's going to fix an underlying mood or anxiety disorder. Right. So I'm I'm holding nothing back here with you. Maria. Well, no, but I mean, it's that that that's that is ultimately what it comes all back to: stigma, stereotype, shame, judgment. To do to ourselves and to each other. hundred percent. Each other. Yeah, yeah. The notion that we can't, we don't have the power, the, the agency to reject what some strange person, often a man, in some strange setting, while you're stripped down, wired up, and you know, tied down. Wait a minute. Like it doesn't occur to us in that position to say, huh. It like also, you said, let me think about that. It also doesn't occur to us. And this is from the social science perspective. It also doesn't occur to us to say, what in the fuck is that doula talking about? I want an epidural. That's where we stop. In the face of this thing called natural motherhood, we shut ourselves down. We've gotten to the point where we can maybe say, well, you know, make sure that that doctor in the white coat isn't doing anything invasive. Maybe he's going to save your fucking life. Right. So we're talking about two. This is now the crossover, uh, you know, because we've just intersected. And I think that's another one of when I think of intersection, I often think of you and your work. Um, You know, so there is this this space here where um, the epidural is amazing and the C-section is necessary. And whatever those interventions are that can ease or help, whatever that is, those are important. Um, But you know, going back to this idea that we'd shame one, one woman would shame another woman mm-hmm. into thinking that she's not breastfeeding the right way, or you don't know how to feed your child or, you know, oh. what we eat, you know, oh, well, that's, you know, you shouldn't be eating Brussels sprouts. Boom. Again, your fault, you know, you, and, or if you're not doing it this way, you're somehow inadequate or inept or, you know, less of a mother, dare we say. And these are these things get internalized. We don't have a, a although I do think that social media and blogs and just the, the, the digital world now does have some benefits in the sense that women can find community and discuss even if it's in a Facebook group, but I think that is more more accessible. If I had that, you know, 16 years ago, but again, I didn't even think to seek it out. So, giving ourselves that agency, and you know, again, that makes me think though, like we don't think anything's going to go wrong. What could possibly go wrong? This is why we're on the earth to procreate. We are born. You're born to be a mother. Mm. Mm-hmm. I mean, those expectations. So then we don't, it doesn't, I mean, I know for me, I didn't think I needed to do research. Why do I, people would say, are you going to do, are you going to read any books? Are you going to look into it? What would I have to look into? I, this is my calling. This is what I'm supposed to do. You know, so many people have got this ideal of motherhood. Like I'm going to just, you know, gently squat down into the bathtub or you know the bushes or the field wherever I am and just you know while caressing my horse that I rode here on you know I'm going to bring this angel into the world you know with one gentle oh, and there it is you know and, and immediately we're, and my milk comes in and right and we all eat 
we all eat placenta for dinner and it's That's a beautiful right. world. And my, my partner was naked in the tub with me. It was amazing. You know, well, good for you. You know, at any rate, that is not the normal, you know, the normal, normal. But if we think, you know, we have these Calgon moments of like what it's going to be like, and it's really, maybe it can be, but honestly, there's a whole, it's just, I, I also, this is such a great conversation. Thank you. And I'm, it also makes me think about how you and I are embedded in a culture of privilege because this, these kinds of Calgon moments are not even on the radar for culture. Many, many people. Yeah. Yeah. For women of color, uh, women who don't have access to financial uh, institutions that can help them. I mean, the women who, the majority of women in the world, I, I can make this statement, I think, the majority of women in the world are not having pain up and pangs about whether or not they're going to have a doula. Right. And whether or not they're going to go natural. Right. Which so, means- and, and I mean, you, you, you know, and it, it's a, it's a important point too, um, where, the, I mean, that is true. There, are, there's a, there's a grim reality that we're not even, that yeah. we haven't even tapped into yet. We're talking about, you know, that kind of coming off the, the consumerism bend of like the way that we're being pandered to and marketed and exploited in that sense where, you know, you're buying your cribs and your Wendy's and your Rutgers and your this and that, and it's got to be perfect. And we're doing our prenatal and our Pilates. It's like, there's all this stuff that you feel like you have to buy and do, you know, um, or you're somehow not whole. And then you have to post it, and show everybody, you know, it's flexible and there's that whole other, but again, it's so, and there's that, but then there's, there's, you know, backtracking to, to the greater reality of birth in America. We have the, uh, you know, the United States has, has the um, impressive, very uh, unfortunate honor of having one of the worst maternity care systems or maternal maternal mortality rates in the world, but also just in general, just maternity care in the world. Um, so, you know, someone who's saying, I remember when I kind of jumped into the advocacy, jumped into the, to the conversation, that wasn't until say 2014, I wanna say. And then the statistic for postpartum depression, which by the way, could be triggered by literally just having birth in America. Um, it was one in seven women. Mm. And now it's more commonly, we hear more like one in five. Although um, someone was saying the other day, it's actually more like one in three. And then of course, for, for black women, that's three, three, it's three out of five women. Let's just break this down a second. Please. (laughs) We're having the conversation that what you just shared is that truth becomes reality when we put it in numbers. And we'll pay attention to numbers. So one in seven, one in five, oh, one in three. Oh, we're still using a paradigm of looking at things as numbers numbers and we do need some of that 
And we do need to know prevalence and point prevalence and incidence. And you know, look at COVID, we need to know the incidence rates and the prevalence rate. But the fact that we only communicate about things that are really important and we only pay attention to them if they're A, socially interesting based on the constructs right now. So Britney Spears, that is, comes to mind or a young white girl who's found dead in the desert. So that pulls us, or we'll look at numbers. Oh, did you know that one in, one in, so I'm working on a grant application right now and we're thinking about titling it one in five because that will get people's attention. And to me, it, it hurts a little bit because to do research in this area, to do any research and to teach others, like I, I get the privilege of doing to do research, we still have to use the tool of numbers to communicate something important. And that to me is uh, being stuck and reminds me of conversations that I had with Jane Honigman and uh, when I went back to do the second version of my book, it's like, I thought that the statistics may have changed. No, they did not. They're so actually that, getting worse. <laughs> well, yes and no, depending on how far back in history you look. So when Victor Marseille was the first to kind of do a point prevalence, little anecdotal point prevalence study in the hospital, looking at women with postpartum melancholia, the number was around one in seven. <laughs> now we're somewhere one in seven and five. So to me that says, well, we're, we're pretty good at measuring it. We know it exists. What are we doing about it? Right, how do you get yeah. out of that? So, so for you, where, when you, you're feeling this sense of, you, you use the word stuck, how do you get out of that stuckness in like, where do you pivot from here in your work? Oh. You know, if you want to, if you want to show and communicate, um, you know, this truth, right. And like, you hear a lot of people will say, well, the numbers don't lie. You know, it's this, like it's there. So how do you, how do you, how do you communicate this information non-numerically? Words. You do it through qualitative research. You do it through asking women themselves to tell their words in addition to the numbers. One doesn't count more than the other. We do need both approaches, that kind of positivist approach of looking at something objectively, how much of this is occurring within a community. But additionally, I wanna know how it's occurring within a woman in that community from her perspective. So we're starting to get into, I don't wanna say storytelling because you know, it, although I love that topic, but it is this concept of asking, you know, we, we hear it all the time, you know, oh, how are you doing? No one ever says to mom, how are you? This is even deeper than that. It's, you know, giving somebody, whether you wanna use the word permission or space, but asking to for, to hear what the experience was like for a woman. So for instance, in your book, when we hear these stories from these 25 women 
um, they are using words that perhaps we, you know, didn't have, couldn't find or weren't, at, weren't accessible to us before. They're using important words that at the time felt, um, well, let's talk about it. What are some of the words that, that came up a lot in your study for transformed by postpartum depression? Hmm. Right, there was, there was a, I would say shattered is probably the one major theme and it was the, the description of what the experience of untreated postpartum depression did to them was words like broken, crashed, hit by, uh, done, uh, broken up, shattered, ruptured, words like never again, words like uh, disgusting, gone. So the, the nature of the language about living through untreated postpartum depression was that they were shattered. Their lives as they had known them were gone. And that is something that we know about in trauma. The shattered, shattered base assumption where all of the safety mechanisms that we know about how to keep going in life are an event comes and shatters them. So untreated postpartum depression, when I followed the words of the women who experienced it, helped me understand that they weren't just talking about transformation, they were talking about trauma. That was traumatic. And another, you know, in a, in a more recent study, what comes to my mind is, you know, when women talk about, when anyone talks about anything and they start to use metaphors or analogies, and I, and think of participants who shared in remembering postpartum depression. It was like the play. It was dark. It was the dark hole, the dark hole. When you have multiple participants using the reference to an image and, and language of darkness, a vortex, a hole that has a directionality to it. it. It is a way for us to understand what it feels like. And it also gives us the information as to what could have gone differently. I was talking yesterday to, I mentioned the, the grant, one of the um, colleagues working on this grant she was sharing with me her, uh, she's a licensed social worker and she was sharing with me her experience of worrying about breastfeeding. You know, is the baby getting enough? And I shared with her a story, <clears throat> I don't wanna say story, a data set from one of my participants in a, in a study who shared that you know, somebody with postpartum um, depression, she remembered her baby had reflux and she was 
in the lobby of her apartment building and the baby threw up, she got down on the floor and scooped up that vomit to measure how much had gone. And when you hear physical acts like that, you know, of bending down to scoop up, these are, the, it, it speaks, it's just me. It just speaks to me. And it speaks to me because I, I love the idea of hermeneutic phenomenology. And that one thing we have to communicate life are words. Words. Words do matter. Thank you again to Walker Ladd for her time and interview. If you would like to learn more about Walker and her work, you can visit www.walkerlad.com. Thanks very much for listening and talk to you soon.